Did you know that the Pop Culture Preservation Society depends on support from listeners like you to keep our podcast up and running? We are an independent operation, creating, producing, distributing, and promoting the podcast by ourselves and paying for it out of our own pockets because we love it and we think it's worth it to preserve the well-loved cultural nuggets from our Gen X youth. If you'd like to become a supporter of the PCPS, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search for Pop Culture Preservation Society. Our Patreon supporters are like our pit crew, giving us the fuel we need to keep on trucking. And as a Patreon supporter, you'll also get special thank you gifts, like video recordings of our episodes, after the episode discussions, invitations to live events over Zoom, and the occasional blooper delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening and for being a part of our society. It was an unusual vehicle for channeling our theatrical skills in the role-playing and lip-syncing <laughs> department. Um, I think 100% of us, certainly 100% of the people on this screen, but probably 100% of the people in the audience have that same memory, Carolyn, of putting on a show mm-hmm. of some mm-hmm. kind and lip-syncing the songs. Mike says that he remembers his sister putting on shows with her friend. And I said, weren't you in the show? He said, no, I was the lighting guy. Like, he right, didn't well, even so get, was. I was so sad. Was like, you didn't get to be a T-bird? He said, no, <laughs> they gave me a flashlight. And he showed me how he just, like, held it. He just yeah. held the flashlight on them like this. But you know what? He was still part of the show. Hello, world. There's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation who spent their Sunday afternoons with Marlon Perkins and Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. We believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And today, we'll be saving the album everyone got for Christmas in 1978, one of the best-selling soundtrack albums of all time, known officially as Grease, the original soundtrack from the motion picture. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle, and we are your pop culture preservationists. In the summer of 1978, we Gen Xers experienced one of our biggest and most memorable cultural touchstones, the theatrical release of the original high school musical, also known as Grease. And part of what made this such an all-encompassing cultural moment was that the movie was released hand-in-hand with the movie soundtrack, a double LP set that included no less than six hit singles and sold over 30 million copies, making it one of the best-selling albums of all time. So this movie was not only on the big screen, it was simultaneously on our radios and in our homes. And when I say in our homes, I mean everyone's mm-hmm. home. I don't think I went to a single home where Greece wasn't on the hi-fi console record cabinet. Probably in every right. country, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was about oh, to say, and sure. if you didn't have it, get out of America. And I was like, wait, but probably everybody else had it, too. Get out of America. <laughs> You're un-American. This album could be found playing on our family stereo nonstop 24 hours a day. But my distinct memory, and I this is embedded in my heart and my head, was 
my all of my cousins, so my mom's sister and my mom's brother and all of their kids were visiting that summer of 1978, and we had the album, and we all were in the living room singing. So all of my cousins, my grandmother was there. And I remember seeing her sitting in this chair, smiling. It was the one and only time in her lifetime that all of her grandkids were in the same place at the same time. And not only, you know, were we just sitting around, we were having the time of our lives. We were acting out the song. And I just remember looking at her, and it was pure happiness. And I remember thinking, I want to give this to my mom one day, and I hope my kids can give this to me one day. It was just this beautiful, beautiful moment, and Greece will always remind me of that. Wow. It was an unusual vehicle for channeling our theatrical skills in the (laughs) role-playing and lip-syncing department. Um, I think 100% of us, certainly 100% of the people on this screen, but probably 100% of the people in the audience have that same memory, Carolyn, of putting on a show Mm -hmm. of some Mm -hmm. kind and lip syncing the songs. Mike says that he remembers his sister putting on shows with her friend. And I said, weren't you in the show? He said, no, I was the lighting guy. Like he didn't even get, I was so sad. Like you didn't get to be a T-bird? He said, no, (laughs) they gave me a flashlight. And he showed me how he just like held it. He just yeah. hold the flashlight on them like this. But you know what? He was still part of the show. So I've told you guys many times how I was, you know, kind of weirdly obsessed with the 50s. Even as a small child, I loved to put on my mom's all cheerleading outfit, which was one of those long corduroy skirts oh that was like God. double-sided, super heavy, because she was a cheerleader like in the late 50s, right? Or early, yeah, late 50s. And with the big giant sweater and had the really long, I think the pom-poms were probably made out of crepe paper, you know, who knows? And she had her big mm-hmm. megaphone still. Oh, you remember that they would like use oh, yeah. So I just was always a obsessed with the 50s. So when Greece came along, and it's my sweet spot, I was nine years old, just nine years old. And so you've got the 50s, but you've also got singing and dancing, which I did all the time. I mean, I was always singing. I was Oklahoma was on, you know, constantly or, or Annie or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like you just said, I mean, it was an, it was a rush home from school put on the put on the soundtrack. And I don't have the memories of doing it with other people. I just did all the parts myself. I have a memory for sure of being all the pink ladies, being Sandy, being all the T-birds, being Danny. Like no matter what the song was, I was the teen angel. I was whatever. I was, I was everybody. The rushing home from school thing. I think that's going to be something that strikes a nerve with a lot of people because it was grab your backpack and run home. Right. And, and then there was always this, this argument, this contentiousness over the roles that you were going to play. Who is going to be Sandy? Who is going to be John Travolta? Not when you get to be all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Not for me. You had to take turns. I figured out like, a- you were Sandy last time. I think our listeners know, because I've said it many times before, that Grease is the movie that holds my record for the highest number of times mm-hmm. I've seen it in the theater, which is nine. And here's the thing, you guys, that record is not going to be broken because there are that's not a thing anymore. Movies mm-hmm. aren't in the theater long enough for you to go see it nine times. We'll see how Barbie does. I don't know. It might give Grease a run for its money. I'm sure there are people out there who have seen it nine times. But as far as my rate of movie going is concerned, I can't fit in nine times of Barbie. Well, think, uh, Kristen, between actually going to the movie theater and seeing the movie and the hours you spent listening to the soundtrack, how much of 1978 and beyond, like time-wise, was spent Greece and, you know, involving Greece? That's a good question. That's Mm -hmm. an excellent question because the percentage is high. It's really high. 
Also, let's not forget, we didn't have all the types of distractions the kids have today. That's right. Right. Mm -hmm. So this was our fun. Yeah. Oh, you guys, it was so pure. I know. It really was. And right, I think right now, if we closed our eyes, our listeners too, you can immediately picture the Grease album. I mean, that's not not anything I have to be going. Go like, oh, hold on a second. I think there was a this on the front. <laughs> I mean, that unforgettable green cover with the unforgettable snapshot of Carnival Sandy <laughs> and Danny, just as big as can be on there, and just staring at that and then opening up the Gatefold album and seeing the splash of um, that spread of snapshots. Mm-hmm. And when I was just re-looking at it, I don't know that I remembered that it was like on a um, – diner table like those mm-hmm. photos were That's spread right. out on a oh, I never diner table that. You're right. with like salt and pepper shakers it's like you're looking there's down a drink on it with a straw mm-hmm. there's a napkin right. holder and, i'm looking at it right now and you could just spend hours just staring at those pictures because oh. they're all from scenes from the movie hours and you're just immediately taken back yep. i just mm-hmm. that album will always be at the forefront of my mind when it comes to album covers um and so a couple fun facts about the album cover yay, yay. it was designed by two men george Curcio and tim bryant of the hollywood design agency gribbit isn't that funny <laughs> ribbit is there a frog um, as its logo ribbit Oh, I didn't see the logo but there is an exclamation point it looks like in their <laughs> title it's like gribbit exclamation point they're also known for designing albums for John Denver, Bob Dylan, mm. Dolly Parton, and a lot more. So this was a classic agency. But believe it or not, this was George Corsio's first album that he ever designed was the Grease album. Well, not, way to go, dude. I know, right? Knock it out of How's the that the for your resume? Time. Yeah. You set the bar pretty high, though, there. And there's the telltale pencil on oh, the, the front pencil, of yes. the album cover, too. So you have the – it's green and it's got the photograph. But the pencil tells you this is about school. Right. This is going to take place. <laughs> well, in yeah. And then the back cover, if you remember, it's like where it lists the songs and everything. It's, yeah, it's a, like a three ring binder. Yeah. And then um, that photograph of everyone with the pencil going, is like, Whoa. Yeah. yeah. It's right when they go, Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the origin story of the album a bit. I think most people know that Grease was on Broadway first before it became a movie. It was the brainchild of two young part time actors who woke up one night surrounded by passed out potheads sleeping on their floor. And because they were sick of listening to Led Zeppelin, they instead dug out their old 45s from high school. And one of them said, wouldn't it be great if there was a Broadway show with this kind of music instead of all that Oklahoma crap, which we're not going to, we're not going to talk about that (laughs) right now. I know. What? (laughs) (laughs) But even at its inception, before it was even born, Greece was about the music. First and foremost, it was about the music. So I, but ironically, both of those guys had very limited musical ability and only one of them could even read music. They basically knew a few chords on the guitar and that's it. And that's how they composed all of the music for Greece. So the show first opened in Chicago in 1971 and they were on Broadway within the year and they were already getting offers to turn it into a movie. One of the deals had them aiming for a release date as early as 1974. But then the creators got really nervous that a movie would then take away their Broadway audience, so they Mm -hmm. waited. That waiting time, that instinct for them to wait, is what turned Grease into a Gen X touchstone. Because a movie released in 1974 is a boomer movie. A Mm -hmm. 1978 Mm -hmm. movie is a Gen X movie. And there'd be no John Travolta. There would be no Olivia Newton-John. 
it's a different animal completely. It might have mm-hmm. been just a Broadway show translated to the screen. And I think that this became so much more of that. It became its own monster, really. Well, I don't think it would have been as successful either because if you remember on our Happy Days episode, I remember um, finding out that Happy Days came after the success of American Graffiti, which was in the early 70s. And then Happy Days started and then Happy Days takes off and is huge by 1978 when Grease hits. So, you know, all of us, we already are sort of living in that era. Yeah of the 50s mm-hmm. and loving it. And it didn't just come and hit us out of the blue. Like, why is this a movie about the 50s? Mm-hmm. We were already so in love with Happy Days and American Graffiti from years before that it made sense. I mean, that's that's absolutely true because it would have then been one of the things that seeded our love of the 50s as opposed to our object of desire for the 50s. So mm-hmm. American Graffiti, I would be willing to guess for a lot of people is a movie that you remember your parents being really into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were too young. Um, yeah, we were too young. And it's a great movie, but it was not for us. It was for uh-huh. our parents. And this could have fallen into that same category. Right. right. But American Graffiti, what I was saying is that that's what though, that was sort of the catalyst for it's Happy Days. So it all yeah. was, it mm-hmm. all just one thing mm-hmm. led to another, led to another. And mm-hmm. if Greece would have been way back before Happy Days, I don't think it would have been. I really don't. I think that just Happy Days scene. helped. I think Happy Days really helped everybody fall back in love with the 50s. And Happy oh, Days yeah. was probably the number one show when Greece came out. So we were primed and ready. Mm-hmm. We were ready oh, to yeah. go. I think I was a 50s girl for Halloween for like from mm-hmm. 19, probably 76 or 77, all the way till I didn't, you know, dress yeah. up like that anymore. Yeah. It was so, so there easy was no to- happy days. Right. Mm-hmm. So the people exactly. who eventually got those movie rights and turned it into the biggest movie of 1978 included British music producer Robert Stigwood, producer of Saturday Night Fever. He was the manager of the Bee Gees, Andy Gibb, Cream, among others, all released on RSO Records, which stands for Robert Stigwood something with an O. Um which you will all remember from the drawing of the little red cow with the letters RSO printed on its side that spun around in a circle on your record player, including Mm -hmm, on the Grease album and on the Saturday Night Fever album and on all the Bee Gees albums and all of your Andy Gibb albums. You know that little red cow. These were music powerhouses, all of them. So the soundtrack was probably not going to be a throwaway. No. I mean, you knew, you knew there was a track record there. Mm -hmm. And the soundtrack was actually released on April 14th, 1978, which was two months before the film was released on, like you just said, on Robert Stigwood's RSO label as a double LP, like Carolyn said, which that means a gatefold. And, you know, my God, that always makes us pee our pants. Yeah, it does. Our minds, <laughs> right? You know, another reason I bet, you know, when you said, Carolyn, that we're all studying those pictures, and we've talked about that before mm-hmm. on other gatefold albums. But think about it. We couldn't just go to the tape like you can go to now. Like, what was that scene? Let me go back no. and rewind and see. Right. We didn't have that capability in 1978. Once we all started getting VCRs and it started becoming, people started getting cable and stuff in the you know early 80s, sure. But in 1978, when we had this album, we might have only seen it once or twice in the movie theaters, not nine times. And mm-hmm. we were relying on those little pictures to remind us of that scene. That was our YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, it was. It was our social yeah. media. Yeah, social media. So, Greece is one of those records that brilliantly encapsulates the spirit of two completely separate eras. It's fifties in a really big way, 
but it's also very 70s. It is a great mix of doo-wop, rock and roll, ballads, rockabilly, pop, anthems. We truly get the best of both eras. Yeah. Um, uh, I found this um, quote, uh, which I love. It was on youdiscovermusic.com talking about the Grease uh, soundtrack. And they say, the multi-artist set skillfully captured the youthful innocence and ebullient, let me say that again, because I know I was going to say that wrong, captured the youthful innocence and ebullience of the late 1950s and the early days of rock and roll. But with sales estimated at 30 million plus, it was such an astonishing worldwide success that it also came to represent the musical zeitgeist of the late 1970s as well. So amazing. That is a feat. That is, I mean, for Robert Stigwood and all of those people, think of what they did to our culture. They like took over our culture completely. And what Mm -hmm. that also meant, they're able to take 70s songs and 50s songs and a 50s context in a 70s rapper. That meant that the album and the movie, for that matter, worked for all the people in your house. Your parents were going to take you to see Greece and you were going to, they weren't just taking you to a kid's movie. You were both there equally for the fun. Mm -hmm. And the same goes for the soundtrack. With the exception of two songs, all of the music from the Broadway musical was included on the soundtrack. And you know some of those songs that you've like never heard of that are on side three of the album? (laughs) Those are probably from the Broadway musical. Several of those were used for background music. Some were playing on the jukebox and the diner. But the most successful songs from the soundtrack were written especially for the film, including... The title track, Grease, along with You're the One That I Want and Hopelessly Devoted to You. (laughs) One of my favorites. (laughs) But if you happen to like get the Broadway cast album, maybe your parents had had it or something, you would quickly realize that they are not the same. Mm -mm. It could be very disappointing if you maybe thought they were going to sound the same. I have a very distinct memory of my parents having the Broadway soundtrack um, to Sound of Music. And right after I first saw The Sound of Music, I was so excited that my parents had this soundtrack. And I put it on, and it's someone named Mary Martin. I mean, what kind of name is that? It's not Julie Andrews singing. And the songs all sounded different. Talk about disappointing. It was like, again, kind of like how I thought I've gone through life on the, not the B squad, but like (laughs) the dupes. It's like, well, we have the sound of music, but it's more like, you know, the sound this of music. Or, yes. Yeah. Music. Like, Carolyn, no. I have that same exact experience with the Mary Martin album. We're like, yay, the sound of music. What is this? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Who is Have you guys this? ever? Well, imagine my disappointment when as a mother, as an adult, I took my girls to see Grease. I had never seen the the Broadway show. I took my older daughter and her friend. And I was like, Great, you know, thinking it's going to be the movie version on stage. It's wildly different and oh, yeah. very inappropriate for oh. seventh graders. Like I was like saying- For seventh her, graders? They were in like, well, they were in middle school. So yes. Wow. And I was a very like open, like we talked about everything, but I remember apologizing and like saying to my daughter's friend, please, please just tell your mother I didn't know. Like if you tell your mother <laughs> any of these parts, like I didn't know. Um, so well, yeah, and her mom probably was your age. So she probably expected the same thing that you did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sure. We just it don't wasn't have until, that experience. I'm not saying it it's bad. I'm just saying it's yeah. for all of us that grew up so attached to this movie and this yeah. soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't bother. Right. Well, the research that I did to get ready for today's episode um, just said how kind of dark the original Grease was in terms of um, a lot of the storyline and, um, you know, a lot of the classism Mm -hmm. stuff they talked about. Um, And it wasn't all 
happy and kind of the um, image we have of it wasn't the, the high Grease school musical. Movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> well, and Carolyn, you do know who Mary Martin's son is, right? I do. Okay, good. Chris Martin. <laughs> <laughs> no, but now I know, I know, but now I'm totally blanking. Larry that's Hagman. How my mom... It's Larry Hagman. Oh, that's, that's right. right. That's yes. right. That's mm-hmm. right. Larry Hagman. And my that's parents, right. of course, this has nothing to do with nothing, but my parents, they love the Mary Martin album and they love Mary Martin and she's a movie. Mm-hmm. She's such a star. And oh, and this album is so lovely. And I'm like, whatever. No, <laughs> I know. Me too. I no. can st- oh, it's yeah. not the same. It doesn't hold up. Not the same at all. Okay. So this soundtrack, and especially those big hits that were written specifically for the movie, defined 1978 for so many people. So let's go through this album and bring back some memories. How come I can hear things like that perfectly in my head, and when I try to recreate it out my mouth, it doesn't sound anything like it? Welcome to my world. <laughs> like, nah, 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 nah. And I'm like, wait. Because okay. the brain and the mouth are two different things. <laughs> so track one, side one, is the title song, Grease. We could devote an entire episode to just this one song alone. I will try to be brief, you guys. I will apologize in advance for how much I have to say about this. I'm sorry. I'll try to go quickly. This was written specifically for the movie. It was released as a single in May, and Grease went straight to number one. It doesn't tell you anything about what happens in the movie. It's not a story song at all, which I think was confusing to some of us. But it does tell you what the movie is about, which, in a nutshell, is identity, is individuality. Listen to your heart. Be who you are. It's an anti-establishment song, which we were nine, so (laughs) we didn't care about things like that. And among the master strokes of the album's production was the involvement of Barry Gibb, who was still flying high at the helm of the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. It was still on the charts. And Robert Stigwood asked him, the star of the 70s, to write the theme song for this movie about the 50s. And so this movie opens with a very distinct 70s disco groove, backed up by an animated sequence that plops us squarely in the 50s. This is where we meet Danny, who's he's combing the grease into his hair, a la Fonzie. We get quick flashes of Elvis and Davy Crockett, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Marilyn Monroe. Sandy wakes up like a Disney princess surrounded by birdies. We meet Rizzo squeezing into that hot pink turtleneck sweater, and she has a poster of James Dean on her wall. We meet all the T-Birds. And I remember, you guys, when John Travolta's name and his face, his animated face, pop up on the screen, and everyone's starts screaming it's just such like when i see it now i can still i still get goosebumps because i can hear the screaming of the people in the audience so we have this 50s content but it still looks like what we were watching on 1970s saturday morning cartoons essentially all backed up by the current king of disco (laughs) but barry gibb didn't want to sing the song so who did he choose to sing this disco adjacent song about the 50s Frankie Valley from the Four Seasons. And he didn't have to do anything to make it sound more 50s. Just the presence of his voice was enough. Barry Gibb did, though, provide backing vocals to mm-hmm. such a degree that I think a lot of people think that he sang the song. 
And you can hear Barry Gibb and Frankie Valley together singing the part where they sing, What are we doing here? What are we doing here? And it's done in the falsetto, um, which is kind of a Bee Gees calling card, that, vol- mm-hmm. that falsetto, right? And Frankie Valley, not coincidentally, also a falsetto singer. Remember Sherry and Big Girls Don't Cry? Big Girls Don't Cry. I love, cry. love all their music. So you wonder if that's why Barry Gibb chose him, because he was a falsetto singer and they could really do this song together. So the whole grease is the word thing comes from Barry Gibb's exclamation when Robert Stigwood told him the name of the movie. And he said, Grease, what a word. I mean, except if you're from Australia, you're probably like, what a word. Grease, what a word. And then he used his reaction to write the song. And at first, just like you said, Carolyn, um, he he made this a very dark song. And the director thought it was too dark, probably more like the Broadway musical. And he did want it to be more like high school musical. And it's true. The words of Greece tell us that this is a life of illusion, wrapped up in trouble, laced in confusion. And you most importantly, don't just I know that. you can't. You, you have can. to sing it. We take the pressure and we throw away. Conventionality belongs to yesterday. Anti-establishment, right? But that's pretty dark. This is the theme of the movie, though. He's telling the powers that be that he's on to their bullshit. He knows that their rules are unfair and unnecessary. And in the end, they only hurt people. And he says, their lips are lying. Only real is real. We stop the fight right now. We got to be what we feel. Grease is the word. You can't say it. You just got to say Grease is the time. The time is the place. the motion. Oh, it's hard. It's hard to read the words of Greece. It's almost like a phonetic song. We learned it phonetically. We don't have any, we, at the time, we didn't have any idea what it meant. And we probably thought it was divorced from the movie. But you know, as a teacher, though, we're all teachers yeah. at, at the, our court. This would have been a great song to use to teach syllables. Yes, what, it, it would. Just, you're right. Where so, do you so, divide it? I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Conventionality <laughs> belongs to <laughs> yesterday. Oh, my God. So I just wonder, like, what did Robert Stigwood say to Barry Gibb? What was his pitch mm. about the movie? Because he's writing this song before the movie is made. What did Robert Stigwood tell him the movie was about to make him write those lyrics? Where this is a life of illusion, wrapped up in trouble, laced in confusion. Well, that's his. That's his. That's his superpower, though. You guys, don't you yes. remember? And <gasps> listeners, if you haven't yes. listened to our two-part episode on Saturday Night Fever, the first one's all about the movie, and I mean it is a good, good PhD level discussion mm-hmm. about Saturday Night Fever. And I'm not kidding; it really is a really good dissertation. But the second episode, we dive into the soundtrack, and we all were gobsmacked, realizing all of those lyrics perfectly described the movie, the feeling, what was happening in the scene. And a lot of them, you guys, throw in a little Brady Bunch there. Barry Gibb wrote before it was even shot and he knew the script. It's like, I get... He's got a sixth sense. Yeah, he does. Kristen's holding her boobs, you guys. holding my boobs. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it is kind of like, that man is a freaking genius. Okay, that was brief, right? I did it. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, track two is Summer Nights, which was released in 1978, in August of 1978, as the fourth single from the soundtrack. Summer loving had me a blast. Summer loving happened so fast. I met a girl crazy for me. Met a boy cutest for me. Became a massive hit worldwide during the summer of 78, reached number five on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. That's really good. Um, this is one of the songs that I probably played out most often. I'd put a little cardigan just over my shoulders totally. and I would skip around the house with my hands clasped behind my back, skipping, looking behind me at all my imaginary friends who were skipping behind me too. You know, like Patty's got to be behind me skipping. Um, as you guys know, this song is sung by the entire cast, but led by John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. This is the song at the beginning of the movie that gives us all the exposition. This is the song that basically sets up what's to come because it's the contradiction of their stories, of their summer romance that had to end, and the contradiction that will become evident very quickly in their characters, or at least the personas of their characters, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, his story, Danny's story, is that their relationship in the summer was very physical. He's bragging to his friends, you know, and um, Sandy's version is the very sweet, focusing on the very sweet and emotional parts of their romance. And this is actually a great debate to have if you think about the lyrics to this song. Who's telling the truth? Is it a little bit of both? Is it one or the other? And will we ever know? We'll never know. <laughs> Regardless, it is a great, great song. That's true. It. They never tell you which version is the truth or which one mm -hmm. is closer the, to the mm -hmm. truth. You can't know. Mm -hmm. And I can't no, presume I, to know. I can't I, presume to say. When I was um, a kid, though, I'm pretty sure I believed Olivia Newton-John. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And yeah. John was just... Yeah. Well, I think know, there was a tales. sense that his bravado was a lot of performance. Hers felt less performative. Um, and his yeah. felt very much like he was trying very to impress much. his friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, uh, Well, next up, we have what's probably undoubtedly my favorite song from the movie and will maybe be my top all-time Olivia Newton-John song. Wow. Yeah. And this would be Hopelessly Devoted to You. Because the memories of that song, it brings me right back to the scene. Can you guys remember that scene? Picturing Olivia Newton-John in her white nightgown and satin oh, ribbon yes. in her hair. And just feeling her heartache as she sings. I just, I could feel it. Guess mine is not the first heartbroken. My eyes are not the first to cry. I'm not the first to know. There's just no getting over you. This is a very a crucial summer in my life. This is when I'm moving from Texas to New Jersey oh, between 7th right. and 8th grade. So anything that's a little melancholy, oh. it just hits me in that place and it, it made, it lives there. So this is one of those songs. And so I immediately go back to that scene. It takes me right back to her leaning against the porch pole and kind of looking up and singing. And then 
remember when she's looking into the little waiting pool. And then it becomes his face. Yes, John Travolta's. It's kind of spooky. Yes. It emerges and then she like goes to touch it and it just kind of dissolves. It's like an Olin Mills, like superimposed. Totally. But just, God, you guys, that everything you said, Carolyn, just, she's just leaning and she's so heartbroken after everything that's just happened that night for that poor girl. And it's so, she just, she conveys that emotion so perfectly in that song. She really does. It's really, it's showing, it's her opportunity to show that she really does genuinely love him. Right. She wasn't in love with an idea or it wasn't just a fun summer. Like she really genuinely is attached to him. And we needed to see that. The viewer needs to feel that for them to invest in this relationship. Right. And you guys believe this or not. The song was actually added after the filming of the movie. Because what? Olivia Newton-John was contractually obligated to have a solo song. And as the, the filming was going on, they hadn't come up with one. It was kind of getting down to the last minute. And her longtime producer actually finally wrote, hopefully devoted to you, his name is John Farrar. And it climbed to number five on the Billboard charts and was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song. Oh, my gosh. It lost, sadly, but to a great song, hmm. Last Dance by Donna Summer. Oh, yeah. Last Dance. Come on, those are, that's apples and oranges, though. You can't put those it two really against is. each other. Very much. Oh, I, know, I know, except they're both original songs. Mm-hmm. It's incredible how the song has stood the test of time, because last year, Grace FaceTimed me while she was at a Harry Styles concert. It was... Um, not long after Olivia Newton-John had died, and he emerged. I think he came out from, like, underneath the stage, comes up, and he's dressed like Danny Zuko. And then he begins singing, Hopelessly Devoted to You. Oh, my God. And she's holding the camera up. I can hear her singing. The whole arena is singing. They knew the words, you guys. These, you know, people that were young. Yes. Yes. Knew all the words. Unbelievable. gave me the chills. It just was beautiful. Can't you see? Nothing else for me to do. ultimately singable song too. This came on the radio this weekend and I sat in the passenger seat singing it like my heart depended oh, on it yes. while Mike just tolerates me, right? Like he's just <laughs> driving and but there's that part where she goes, but now and like you just have to let it go. Just like let it all out. And that's what I'm exactly. saying though. Like nobody can cover it though and do that, especially that part, that but now. Yeah. You yeah. can do it the justice that Olivia Newton-John did because you felt everything in that butt now. Um, mm-hmm. That brings up a good point, though, Carolyn, when you said everybody at the Harry Styles concert. So think of the demographic there is singing this song. Mm-hmm. This is a soundtrack, one thing we haven't touched on yet. It, is, it has stood the test of time. My girls mm-hmm. at age 27 and 22, they know, they know the words to these songs. I mean, today's generation knows. 
Well, and to put an exclamation point on the end of that, so Liam, your girls are musical theater girls, right? Liam notoriously hates musicals. Mm -hmm. Just like, he'll just be like, I hate musicals. He will make that statement of fact. I'm like, shut (laughs) up. Don't say that in public. He knows these words. Mm -hmm. And he counts Grease as one of the only musicals that he likes. He likes Grease. He likes High School Musical. That's about it. Sound of music. Sound of music. So he is my child. (laughs) Yeah. It's that also that high school theme, which is such a popular theme for movies. We had American Graffiti, like you talked about, but then obviously the 80s, we talk all about those movies with our John Hughes movies and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And then high school musical for our kiddos, that theme of... um, of what we're all going through in high school, trying to figure out who we are. We can identify no matter what decade or... Because it really doesn't change. No. Things, the the zeitgeist will change, but your identity issues remain the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. From from era to era, from generation to generation. Yeah. Insecurity remains the same as well. Insecurity remains the same. Mm -hmm. That's exactly exactly right. It's like, because the job of high school is to figure out who you are. Mm -hmm. No matter when you were born, that's the job of high school. album is You're the One That I Want, which was a number one hit. It was also written by John Farrar, and this was written to show off Olivia Newton-John's new persona, Carnival Sandy. So when this is when Sandy has shed conventionality and decided that she's going to make out under the dock if she wants to <laughs> in black satin pants. It's got a 1950s like piano rhythm that's pretty insistent and feels a little dark at the outset, like this smoky, sultry new Sandy that we've just laid eyes on. It feels almost like dangers ahead, like like dead man's curve, watch out, like that's what's coming. But then it perks up. It gets brighter when Sandy tells Danny that he'd better shape up. <laughs> Bop, 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 right? Because uh-huh. she needs a man. <laughs> and he, she needs him to keep her satisfied. She now has the power to ask for what she wants, to demand it. And she's not cowering in the corner anymore, fearful of what people are judging her about. And he agrees. She has all the power. And he says, I'd better shape up. Because <laughs> you need a man who can keep you satisfied. And this is also where we see satisfied. Isn't that how we say it? <laughs> This is where Danny is shedding his toxic masculinity. We always say that, why did she have to change? Why did he not have to change? But in truth, there is change on Danny's part. He sheds his toxic masculinity because he's very clearly, almost comically deferring to her and her desires in this scene. He's literally on his knees in front of her saying, I'd better shape up and be the man that you need me to be. And he's doing it publicly in front of people because this was his problem all along was that his public persona was dependent on people thinking that he was a Lothario. Mm -hmm. He got more status for embracing his sexuality, whereas Sandy's status goes down if she embraces her sexuality. So in this moment, he's prostrating himself in front of her saying, I better shape up. I better be the man that you want me to be. Black leather and stilettos will do that to a guy, though, right? (laughs) It might help. (laughs) It might help. might be a lesson we learned. If 
in fact, you can carry it off. If it's not natural to who you are, it's not going to work. Yeah. Right? If that's not who you are in your heart, it's going to come off as awkward and weird. Mm-hmm. And he would have been like, see you later. Yeah, you got to have the confidence to pull it off. You do. Mm-hmm. It has to feel true. And then the song explodes in a raucous rock and roll piano fueled dance bop when they tell each other in unison together. <laughs> the voices that have ruled them before. This song is equal to Summer Nights in terms of its actability in people's basements. Who will be Danny? Who will be Sandy? And it was fun because you got to pretend to smoke if you right. got to yeah. be Sandy. Oh, oh, for sure. Do you yeah. know how do you know how little, you know, 9-year-old good girl Michelle loved to pretend that she was um, <laughs> you know, squishing out the cigarette with her giant stiletto? <laughs> I loved that part. Tell me about it. Stud. Stud. Mm -hmm. It's freeing. It's quite liberating, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Okay, so then the next song, right after that one, is Sandy. Oh, Sandy, baby, someday high school is done. Somehow, someway, our two worlds will be So this songs on the soundtrack are not going in the order of the movie at all. I know, that drove me crazy. Yeah, it really did kind of make us crazy. So because Olivia Newton-John had Hopelessly Devoted to You, they needed a solo for John Travolta. They needed to convince us that he was as in love with Sandy as she was with him. This was unrequited love on both of their parts. Again, if it wasn't, then it's a completely different movie. So, and it was really hard to convince the audience of that because he was being such a dick. He was just constantly peacocking. And they needed something romantic and serious for him to do. And so, at the drive-in movie, he lunges for Sandy in his convertible in full view of the audience because then he'll get more status, right, for being a Lothario. He's embracing his sexuality. But he pushes too far, too publicly, in front of all of his peers from school. But she rejects him and runs away. Because that's not in her comfort zone. She does not want all those people watching them doing those things. And so I think this song does a great job of showing Danny's confusion. He's stranded at the drive-in. He's branded a fool. All those people saw him get rejected. What will they say? Monday at school. Stranded at the drive-in. Branded a fool. What will they say Monday at school? So this is, in the beginning, this is what he's focused on, what this means for his identity. His identity is built entirely on what people on the outside think of him and if he has enough masculinity. And he's carefully built this persona of being a greaser. That's part of what being a greaser is. But at the same time, he's got feelings. And this is where you see that he really does love Sandy because then he pivots to Sandy, can't you see I'm in misery? Sandy, can't you see I'm in misery? Made a star, now we're apart. He does not know how to be a good boyfriend. He has no idea. 
what to do because he only knows what the T-Birds have shown him. And from there, the song turns into a full-blown confession of love. Oh, used to drive me crazy. This so part. I hated that part. I hated the spoken part. It was like almost too vulnerable. Yeah. You hurt me real bad. <laughs> oh, Sandy, but baby. And then the little hot dogs are dancing on the yes. screen behind On them. the screen, mm-hmm. yes, he's which adds a little screen, comic value. Yeah. But he's confessing his love to her. Oh, oh Sandy. Sandy. And you know what? You guys, we gave him a lot of crap in, um, when we were, I forgot what episode it was, when we learned he had some sort of single on the radio, and we were all like, oh my God, that was Oh, terrible. yeah. He's, Let her in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. He can really, he really brings it home on this song. I love this I song, agree. you guys. I didn't love it yeah. as a kid as much because I, of course, wanted, I couldn't be in this one. Um, I could be right. in the beginning where he tries to grab her boob and then I could run. Yeah. I could take his ring off and throw it. But the rest of it, I had to just stand over and wait. And um, I love it now, though. I've loved it as an adult, my whole yeah. adult life. Um, it's a beautiful song. And he does a really he good does, job. He, he, he sells does. it really well. He really does. Mm-hmm. Agree. Okay, now it's time to... Turn the record over. Oh, yeah, turn the record over. Okay. It's time for side two. Side two. But guess what? As usual, we have run out of time. We've already been talking for, I guess, hours. I know. (laughs) Yeah. And we've only, you guys, we've only gotten through side one. And there are three sides to go. (laughs) So, listeners, please join us next week as we continue this discussion and go through all the songs on sides two, three, and four. This is where the action really takes place, and we haven't even gotten to the big dance yet. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope Side One has inspired you to put on a show. Why shouldn't we do this now? Is there some reason we can't put on a show right now? Do it. Pull down the shades if you must. And if you need to practice a bit before you put on your show, this week's Weekly Reader will include clips of these songs so you can. Do just that. You can practice, guys. Our email newsletter is the best way to keep up with our podcast. Each week's episode gets delivered directly to your inbox, and you also get a preview of what's coming up next week. That's kind of fun. This is great for people who aren't familiar with podcasts and can't figure out how to do it. (laughs) Which happens all the time. You know you're out there. It's fine. Uh, Just sign up for the email and click on the link. To sign up, you can go to our website at poppreservationists.com, or we have links in our Linktree link in our Instagram bio. That's a lot of links I just said. Linktree link? Yes, Linktree link and links. And a lot Mm -hmm. of people still don't understand that. So people... (laughs) <laughs> when you're on Instagram, go to our bio where it tells about us, and you'll see a link. Click that, and then it's self-explanatory. For most people. Boom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. For people like me, but that's okay. All you do is. Yeah. And as always, a big thank you goes out to all of our supporters on Patreon. Their monthly donations help pay our bills so that we can keep bringing you episodes week after week. And if you'd like to help us, you can become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com. Or visit our website and click on the support tab. That's right. And every week, we like to give a special shout out to 
a nice group of our patrons. And this week, we would like to thank Ashley, Amy, Debbie, Lisa, Anne, Christy, Kelly, Paula, Lance, and Judy. You guys are awesome. Thanks, you guys. Totally. (laughs) In the meantime, let's raise our glasses for a toast, courtesy of Jack and Janet and Chrissy. To good times. To happy days. To Little House on the Prairie. Cheers. 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 The information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to Carolyn, the Crushologist, and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, there is always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you. Something always happens whenever we're together. We get a happy feeling when we're singing.